Hello there, it's Emma Nelson here, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. And this is Monocle on Saturday. I'm delighted to say joining me to go through the week's news, culture and uh, everything else in between is a political journalist, Terry Stiasny. Good morning, Terry. What's caught your eye? Good morning. Well, we're going to be looking at uh, where Donald Trump is going to find $83 million, why everyone in Britain has suddenly become obsessed with discussing conscription, uh, and also Germany and how they've found a big campaign of disinformation coming out of Russia. Thank you very much indeed for that. We'll also take a look at the stories from the art world this month with the communication specialist, writer and documentary filmmaker Isabella Orlando. So lots to look forward to. First, so a look at the news. A court in the US has ordered Donald Trump to pay more than $80 million in a defamation case brought by a writer. The former president had already been found to have defamed E. Jean Carroll with comments he made about her in 2019. Mr Trump has called the decision absolutely ridiculous and says he'll appeal. Yemen's Houthis claim they've carried out an attack on an oil tanker in the Gulf of Aden, causing a fire to break out. The trading firm Trafigura, which owns the ship, said its fuel tanker Marlin Luanda was hit by a missile strike as it transited the Red Sea. And Canada and Turkey have reached a deal to restart Canadian exports of drone parts in exchange for more transparency on where they are used. The agreement will take effect after Ankara completes its ratification of Sweden's NATO bid. And those are the headlines on Monocle Radio. And a very warm welcome to the studio, Terry Stiasny. How are you, Terry? Uh, I'm very well, yeah. I've had a very nice uh, sociable week catching up with lots of old friends and going to sort of gatherings, a nice literary agency party, which is the kind of thing I don't normally get to do. So oh, my goodness. So London's doing its thing. Yes, yeah. Despite That's it nice being thing. January, people are sort of out and about. So. I don't know. I just feel that January's got a swing in its step this year. There's a lot of... I don't know, I suspect one will come to the papers in a minute, but there's a lot of doom and gloom in the papers and the fact that, you know, there is going to be a recession. We are all tightening our belts, this, that and the other. And I don't know, I'm I'm feeling exactly the opposite here in London. I'm feeling as if people are trying to get out and get it. Mm. Just to try and almost defy what the predictions are. And I, the fact yeah. that you've got nice literary meetings and, <laughs> and businesses going and you just think, OK, this is this is actually a really nice sort of healthy, healthy attitude I to have. I think a lot of people were out and about. I mean, I was meeting a friend at sort of five o'clock in the afternoon on a, on a Thursday and a cafe was absolutely bustling and, and full of people already, and which was quite surprising. I'm wondering what time they're all staying to. I'm, I'm becoming a bit of a fan of the 5pm meet-up. Um, because, you know, it, goes, it leaves you an evening to stretch out ahead. But I, that's a nice thing to see in, in terms of London. And this is central London now, is it? Yes, that was, yeah, Covent Garden. Good. Very smart. Everybody come to London at 5pm. We all go for drinks. Who would have thought it? Um Right. How is the week in terms of uh, what you've been up to work-wise? Because I know that you've ju- you're sort of sitting on your hands waiting for your homework to be marked, aren't you? I am. Yes, I have been quite busy doing you know the this part of my job, um, talking about politics, talking about uh, things going on in the world, but then also waiting to hear back, having delivered a manuscript of a book. But that will be for a few weeks, and there's always a, a phase where you think, oh, you know, I've, I'm going to do lots of really constructive, useful projects that I've been putting off, and I'm still putting them off. I love the fact that. When you um, close, when you when you talked about your book, you sort of closed your eyes and your and your brows furrowed. If you if you if you're in the room with me at this moment, you would see that this is something that goes deep inside Terry's experience. <laughs> What's it like submitting such a big piece of humor, homework and waiting for it to be kind of 
marked. It's, it's quite nerve-wracking because you, you know, it exists in, the, in your mind, it exists as a, as a perfect thing and you think, well, there's obviously nothing more to do to it than just put, put a cover on it and, and send it to the shops because it's, there's nothing that can be improved. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, and, and you know that, you know, editors, agents, whoever are going to come back and say, well, this could be changed, this could be improved, this could be cut. Um, and it's just that waiting for that period when you're going to go, no, 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 you're all wrong. But then you realise that they are probably right. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Is it called growing, apparently? Learning and growing, apparently. So do it again. Uh, Right. Let's have a look at the papers. And uh, talking about learning and growing and doing it again, let's talk about Donald Trump. Yes. Well, he's he's, uh, not learning, not growing, and possibly doing things again, uh, (laughs) despite what uh, a judge has repeatedly told him. Um, So obviously, overnight, we have learnt that Donald Trump has been ordered to pay $83.3 million in damages to E. Jean Carroll. Um, And this is broken up. Uh, The Financial Times is reporting this in detail into uh, a section of main section of damages and then $65 million in punitive damages. Um, And the aim of that is precisely to tell him not to do the same thing again, because he um, had defamed uh, E. Jean Carroll, who was his victim. He had immediately, repeatedly, you know, said horrible things about her. Um, And it's just interesting how fierce the judge in this trial had been towards both Trump and his lawyers, you know, telling them what you can't say, what you can't challenge. Um, But the interesting question here now, you know, is this amount of money is supposed to be a deterrent to ask him not to defame uh, his victim again. But the question is now, where does he get the money from? Uh, And the New York Times has done quite a sort of a deep dive into this. Um, And they begin their story by saying... Donald Trump might one day have to pay E. Jean Carroll the 83.3 million she was awarded, but that day is not today. Um, and so it's just looking at here um, what he might have to do. So there might be an appeal process. There might be it might go through you know other levels of of sort of legal. Um, challenges. But he says he can pay the $83.3 million to the court, which will hold the money while an appeal is pending, or he can try to get a bond. Um, but the interesting question is, is you know, where is he getting this money from um, that he's sometimes dipping into his political action committee's uh, coffers, it says here, to pay for his own legal fees and other expenses. But this is more money than he's got. Um, and apparently what he is also looking at potentially um, is the trial that New York Attorney General seeking $370 million penalty as part of the civil fraud trial regarding uh, his his assets in New York. So, you know, he's really racking up the amount of money here. And the question is, is he going to have uh, enough money to be able to pay all of this at some point? I, I'm, I can't make sense of this, given the fact that $83 million is, you know, something that is beyond most people's reasonable grasp. Dare I say it? Um, and then we also you were talking about the further the the fraud trial to, um, penalties. Um, but a, a quick search around the internet, obviously the most reliable place on earth <laughs> for information, uh, estimates his his net worth at two point six billion dollars. One wonders how people are trying to. I would imagine it's probably quite hard to work out exactly how much Donald Trump is worth. But there must have been an interesting couple of days in the run-up to the, the, the sentencing of this, where someone will have sat down, maybe with a piece of paper and a pencil, and thought, right, how much do you actually have to fine Donald Trump in order for it to hurt him? And you could just imagine them going through with a sort of, I don't know, a little ticker and their abacuses going like that million, that million, that million. It, it's, a, it's a huge sum, but one wonders how punitive it is. 
Well, yes, you also wonder, is there any amount of money which is enough to stop Donald Trump saying whatever he wants to say? Because, you know, this is the idea and the fact that he doesn't seem to really recognise, you know, that judges have told him, you know, don't repeat these defamatory comments and he has kept doing it. I mean, though he was relatively restrained in his reaction immediately after this this verdict. Um, but it's just, you know, it is just interesting looking in the long term you know, how much money does he really have? That is a thing that we don't really know. You know, much of the wealth linked to the value of his properties, it's saying here, you know, would he have to sell properties? And again, you know, the whole uh, sort of the, the fraud trial basically in New York is, is to do with questioning, you know, the value that he's put on his properties and whether that value corresponds to the value that everybody else has put on it. So you can see, you know, one of the reasons he's obviously so keen to get back into office is that, you know, he's hoping that some of these questions might go away. And this is this dual narrative now that is dominating the headlines. We have Trump's front and centre of every single news bulletin nowadays. He's come right back, obviously because of his almost unstoppable trajectory towards the nomination for the presidency. And we also see uh, the latest um, polls suggesting that he's nudging ahead of Joe Biden already and we're only in January. So we have this, re- I, I find it really difficult to reconcile this, this dual narrative of a guy who's facing 91 charges. I mean, 91. I, mean, I, I was saying to you before we come on air, I absolutely, you know, I get the collie wobbles if I get a speeding fine, let alone <laughs> 91 charges. But then at the same time, we have this sort of unstoppable force. And it, it just, I just can't reconcile it. No, I, I do find it really uh, difficult to get into the mindset of particularly the Republican Party that is kind of buying into this the Trump version of things, saying, you know, this is all some sort of conspiracy against him and, that, you know, this is, all, this is all fine. You just think, can for a moment, someone should be able to step back and say, well, hang on, this is, this is our candidate. This is, you know, somebody who's been found to have carried out a sexual assault. This is somebody who, as you say, has 91 charges against him, who is, cons- you know, accused of conspiracies to sort of, you know, overthrow the election results and, and the Constitution and not say... Hang on, there's something. Hang on, there's something wrong here. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be doing this again. Um, but yeah, as you say, you know, the momentum still still seems to be with him. And you know, Nikki Haley is sort of standing there for now. But you know, how long is is that going to last? Is it going to carry on? Uh, let's move to a story which has sort of come up, come from nowhere this week, but has suddenly gripped a collective imagination. Um, the UK Army Chief has said that uh, the British should engage in a mental shift to be ready for major conflict. That came from General Patrick Sanders. I think people in Britain should be ready to serve in the military in the event of a war with Russia. Um, And then an expression called a pre-war generation emerged this week that's probably been doing the rounds, but thankfully hasn't, you know, popped up at the Nelson kitchen table. Um, But it it sort of hits home incredibly quickly from a personal point of view because you have two sons yeah. who are what 16 and 18 yes 18 and, and 16, I have yeah. I have a nearly 12 year old and I found myself for the first time literally on the ca- on my finger on my hand counting the number of years it will take before my son is el- eligible to be called up I never thought I'd be doing that and I wonder if I am a wild fantasist or is this actually something that we do seriously need to consider well I mean this is as you say it's sort of blown up this week but I, we literally were discussing this around our family kitchen table 
table, not because I started the conversation, but because my sons had come home from school, having seen clips of news on, on TikTok or wherever, going, are we all going to be called up to, to go and join the army? And, and discussing, you know, not only whether they're going to be called up, but what they might end up doing or which thing, which parts of it they might join. And apparently this is, you know, the, the conversation in, in the school playground, certainly uh, among boys. And there's all sorts of, you know, memes going around of, you know, what I would look like if I were conscripted, or, you know, what I'd be doing. You know? So they're turning it into a bit of a joke where, you know, they're taking it with a sort of a big pinch of salt. But this is quite interesting. I mean, as you look, this is an article here in The Guardian by the columnist uh, Gabby Hinsliff, who is also looking at, you know, where, where all this discussion has come from. And, and the way she describes it is she says, what happened this week looks like a pan-European conversation until now held mainly behind closed doors, spilling into the open with consequences worth exploring, not just for defence spending, but for te- potentially for everything from green energy transition to manufacturing, food and, and social media, which will come on to in a bit. But I think, yes, you know, I'm not sure if General Patrick Sanders meant this to go quite as far as it has. I mean, because he was initially not talking about, you know, conscripting 18-year-olds. He was talking about recalling reservists, possibly, that we need a second echelon and a sort of a civilian force based behind the lines in case of something. But, you know, inevitably, people's imaginations have kind of run away with them. It's an it's an interesting balance that they strike, because I, I suspect that General Patrick Sanders doesn't say anything that he doesn't want to have an effect. Mm. Um, and what he was saying was that there needs to be a, a shift in the minds of the British public to be mentally ready for a military conflict with Russia. And he called for Britain to train a citizen army ready for a land war. It is not the first time that the head of um, one of the sections of the British military has said, our resources have been depleted, we do not have enough to defend ourselves, let alone stretch ourselves thinly across various conflict zones across across the world. And it is that funny thing where you, you, you get that idea that the, the same story and the same message is being put out there, but the context has changed. And dare I say it, if it's all been absorbed on TikTok... Who knows how that is going to be interpreted? I, mean, <laughs> well, I suspect this might be a lesson to, you know, let's try and stop our children or stop anybody from sort of getting <laughs> credible news, believing that there's going to be a credible news source from 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 TikTok. Yeah, but it is quite interesting, though, apparently, according to, to Gabby Hinsliff's article here, she's saying that Sanders has been quietly arguing for months that we're no longer a post-war country, one for which world wars are the stuff of history lessons and nostalgic Hollywood blockbusters, but a pre-war one that should be made, braced for, for trouble ahead. And I think, you know, there is a kind of, a lot of people have, you know, this great nostalgia for, for the war era or whatever, which is obviously often kind of quite misplaced. Um, but it is suddenly have a changing a way of thinking. And of course, as well, you know, we had the US Navy, Navy Secretary um, saying that Britain needs to think about the kind of resources that they were putting into the military as well. And so there's obviously some underlying concerns because I remember thinking, you know, where did this come from? And there were a few stories a few weeks ago saying the army is struggling with recruitment, the numbers are falling, that the you know, the limits on who you can hire, you know, they're struggling because people, you're not supposed to have serious amounts of tattoos if you're in the army. And that obviously now excludes loads of potential recruits and things like if you've ever broken a limb, they wouldn't take you into the army. And you think, well, the people that broke limbs as young people are probably kind of precisely the people you want to go and join the army because you quite like falling out of trees trees. or (laughs) climbing up things. You know, it seems a strange. So I think what they're probably pushing for is trying to say, let's open the armed services up to more people and let's let be a bit less restrictive. And culturally, is there a bigger question? If you look at the likes of Switzerland, where, you know, where military service is part of life, 
And there's not necessarily a readiness for conflict, but there is a readiness for uh, a slightly more, you know, there is always the argument to be held about does a little bit of uh, order and discipline and getting yourself together, does that actually contribute to a child growing up? I mean, I can say, you know, as as a mother of a 12 year old, sometimes I feel that is the way, sometimes <laughs> I don't. My mind changes on that one. But but the idea of actually um, imposing something which is which which has a collective spirit to it. Yeah. And get, and get good at polishing your shoes. You really <laughs> good at polishing your shoes, which would, frankly... <laughs> they have no concept for that. <laughs> What's that? No. Finding shoes is a different thing. Yeah. But I mean, is, is, it, is it too sensitive a question to raise nowadays, whether the idea of, of, of you know, a, a generation of Brits, unlike a generation of let's, Swiss, um, should be considering this kind of thing? Well, I don't know. Of course, you know, unhelpfully, the person who is also piled in on this in his, you know, very highly paid column is our dearly beloved former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, oh, that's who good. is literally saying that, you know, yes, of course, I would sign up tomorrow. And you think, you're nearly 60 and very overweight. They're not actually going to want you. And then he sort of talks about how he'd been in the combined cadet force at school and was obviously absolutely terrible and a, and a hopeless soldier, which really sort of undermines the argument. But you kind of think this idea that you know, they would want some to, to recruit uh, Boris Johnson for the armed forces is is some, somewhat deluded. Yeah, that's an image that I'm not going to lose easily. <laughs> Thanks for that, Terry. <laughs> OK, let's move on from that. Anything else that you've spotted that you want to talk about today? Um, well, there's a couple of things. So um, the Times is reporting on um, Georgia Maloney's what they call a power grab of the arts and how this is apparently prompting fury in Italy. Uh, and this is to do with it's saying high drama, accusations of foul play and furious slanging matches have all been on the bill at Rome's top theatre this month. Um, and there have ended up being uh, street protests at the Teatro di Roma, opposition politicians um, speaking against... Uh, Georgia Maloney has decided to put her own candidate in to direct uh, the theatre in Rome. And this is really, um, it's going back to a kind of a way which you see in, in many countries in Europe where often the appointments of people to big culturally prominent positions has kind of depended on which political party you're supporting. Um, but this has really um, seems to have flared up in Italy. And Maloney's saying, the world in which membership of the Democratic Party earned you points when it came to public jobs is over, um, saying the era of amicatismo, forgive my pronunciation, is is finished, saying, you know, the network of friends. Um, and she has put her, her own person in, um, and, and but other people in the theatre world, not surprisingly, are, are very angry about this. Um, and they're, you know, trying to get generally a more sort of right-leaning or right-sympathetic uh, leaders into into the cultural world. But this has provoked a massive backlash. And in a hugely sort of the language of this argument is so violent as well. The, the article in The Times um, that talks about this, so there's a left-wing writer, Christian Raimo, uh, who organised a, st- a street protest against what has been happening at the Teatro di Roma. So there's a lack of cultural depth in Maloney's party because of its fascist background. So sometimes they can't find people for roles and pick second raters who jump on their bandwagon. I mean, the fact that they, okay, the, you know, the, the, the traces do go do go back, but, but the fact remains is that there is this perpetual tussle, isn't there, in absolutely every single government that arts are always seem to be the preserve of the left wing. But the, the fact is that the minute that you start to bring fascism and, and, and the conversations around it into the way that arts is controlled, it 
becomes a much more problematic area, doesn't it? Well, definitely. And obviously, ideally, you know, people would be selected to run theatres because they're good at running theatres and they're good at putting on interesting plays or whatever. That, you know, but inevitably also, um, you know, people in, in, the, in the arts world do have political views as well. And, you know, we see it in this country as well where people are saying, you know, who is a suitable person to run a sort of a, a public institution? And we've had lots of arguments about that. Um, but, you know, this is part of Georgia Maloney's thing. You know, she likes to have her big kind of cultural festival where she invites people to say. And it is interesting that um, one of the former advisors here to Maloney's cultural ministers, you know, arguing for it, he's saying that, you know, you can't say the right doesn't have culture and particularly citing British conservatives, like people like, you know, Tolkien, who Georgia Maloney is a, a big fan of and sort of praying them in aid to say that we can have a, a kind of a right of centre culture but you know the question is should governments be be trying to impose that or should they just leave be leaving the arts world to get on and do its thing finally let's talk about art in a in a much more well not light-hearted way but a much more sort of comfortable way uh, in an article in the the ft today um we can briefly touch on the front page of the magazine is fake and there's a picture of uh, donald trump and uh, joe biden engaging what what can only be described as an, a lovely long smooch <laughs> um it's a bit it's a bit of a tough watch, a tip of, bit of a tough view for for a Saturday morning <laughs> breakfast table. I'll be honest, but there's there's a point behind this about the the the, the problems, but also the joys of fakery. Yes, it's a, a big, interesting um, long read by uh, Tim Harford, who is kind of he's kind of comparing. Um, the fakery, fakery in the art world. So moving on from the art world and talking about uh, a famous forger, uh, Eric Hebborn of the past, and you know, really questioning the idea of what is a fake and how do you know if something is a fake or not. But and also saying we're going to end up in this kind of world, really, where it's going to we're going to be so confused about what what is now a fake and deep fake technology. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about whether this is going to affect elections or not um, and, you know, what can we trust? But I think, you know, one of the things he mentions briefly in this article, and it is worth mentioning, is that this has been around for a long time. I mean, Tim Harford here talks about, you know, how sometimes the fakes are done almost deliberately to show you what's a fake. So, for instance, um, when Mao Zedong died um, a photo was taken of a line of Chinese leaders and then um, there were gaps and you know the gaps were where the rest of the gang of four had been kind of disappeared from the photo and that you know obvious fake changed photo was there to say look you're not here forever you can be taken out of the official photo and you remember going back to you know when Trotsky was erased from you know images of, of the Kremlin I think so this idea of faking things for impact has has been around a, a very long time but obviously what we've got now is the the speed of being able to to reproduce it and it, it getting around the world before the truth has got its boots on we'll have to leave it there terry stiasny thank you so much for joining me in the studio you're listening to monocle on saturday here in London. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday with me, Emma Nelson. I'm delighted to say we're going to continue the arts theme now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, because I'm joined in the studio by Isabella Orlando. Good morning, Isabella. Good morning, Now, for those of you who don't know Isabella, uh, she's a communication specialist, writer and documentary filmmaker 
busy. What have you been up to, Isabella? Welcome. So what's what's in your world at the moment? Yeah, well, I mean, the weather has been horrific in the UK. It's not been very nice. It's been very cold. And it's got me thinking about kind of doing winter right and what we classify as bad weather, in quotations, so to speak. And but may I just say, if you're not in the room, and actually there's only just me and Isabella in the room, Isabella has come in with bare shoulders today, which <laughs> I actually haven't, which I haven't seen since September. And so you may be talking about cold weather, but the but the outfit is suggesting that you are you're just that you're having none of it. This My is mind wonderful. is in well summer. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a an Italian blooded Canadian, so I love a warm summer, and I'm bracing a cold winter. I was about to say you're equipped for everything. I if you've should got be. I really should be, but I'm not. It's really it's really I really dread winter and I definitely get like the January blues and stuff so I think dressing the part really helps. Seriously I mean if you get it right you've got Italian summer spot on and Canadian winter spot on if you get it wrong then you know there with your with your massive parka in the middle of July that's not going to happen. Absolutely. Anyway talk to me about how we do winter. The ones who do have winter right I think are we've heard for the last few years the Scandinavians but also the Scots have a really cool kind of winter coping mechanisms, let's call them, um, that don't involve kind of binge-watching a series on the TV, which is kind of how I tend to get through winter. But it kind of flips the script, let's say, on on bad weather. Um, they have sort of an all-weather culture up in Scandinavia, which we've been seeing the kind of Scandi influence for the last few years. But um, there's been a lot of kind of a bit of a jump in popularity, it seems, in similar examples of kind of coziness and outdoor activities that happen up in Scotland, which is, I think, a kind of interesting and refreshing kind of counterpart to the Scandinavian story, which we've been hearing for a long time because there's a lot of historical connection there. Go and tell us a little bit more. Yeah, well, from the 8th century to the 15th century, um, there were a lot of Scandinavians settled in Scotland. The period is called Scandinavian Scotland. So we have a lot of those kind of genetic connections. If you've ever done your family history and you have Scottish roots, you might find you're a bit Nordic. Um, and yeah, so there's, you know, the the Danish Hygge or the saunas um, are kind of the Scandinavian answer to feel-good wellness practices that can help us kind of brave winter and be and enjoy winter, while Scotland has quarry, which is kind of similar and, um, yeah, just ways of embracing cold weather and getting cosy. The bit that I can't quite reconcile myself with is obviously the freezing dips into the into the lake, which is... You either do or you don't. And I have friends who swear by it. And then I have me who swears never to go near it. But there is a, with this, the, the bit that I can never quite get is the, is a fairly, you have to be somewhere beautiful and outdoors for you to massively get this. And when you're just trying to get to the shops with, to buy goodness knows what, let's say a pint of milk or sorry, a litre of milk, um, it doesn't feel very hugger. It feels very like, oh, I'm wearing that miserable thick coat again and it's that idea of how do you challenge channel the idea that there's going to be a cozy fire yeah. waiting for you when actually you live in a sense in, in a densely urban situation and there's nothing cozy about that it's really true i think even something like bundling up and taking a dog walk in a big park is like a way that that spirit can be kind of infused into urban life i think it's more the mindset that i'm interested in of just really having the gumption and the kind of bravery to say it doesn't matter what the weather's like I'm gonna get out there I'm gonna get outside um the delight of a cashmere scarf yeah or you know a nice candle on on the inside but I think it's it's nice also also to hear that like culture can exist outside of museums and cinemas and the places we normally associate it with and it, it's a it's a creation of a very you know modern and accessible culture as well indeed
Okay, so that's it. We're all fine for winter. You've set us up for that one, Isabella. Where are you taking us next? Uh, well, I mean, we are in the dead of winter with with films award season in full swing. Um, so the Golden Globes have just gone. The Critics, Critics' Choice Awards have just gone. We've got the Academy Awards coming up. The nominations have just been announced. And I noticed a bit of a peculiar trait that's kind of common across three of this year's um, big titles, let's say. Um, there's a bit of a Zoom trend going on that I think that is mean? interested in. That I think is interesting. It's the well, it's it's kind of different across the three films: May, December, Anatomy of a Fall, and The Holdovers, which is about to come out in the UK. All have this sort of slow, kind of amateur-looking home video-esque Zoom effect at different points in the films. And it's not quite the Tarantino super dramatic crash Zoom, but it's a real departure from the rest of the cinematography, which is very beautiful, very sleek, very kind of um, calming. There, there is the joy of what I think Teleworld call it a gentle push-in, which I think <laughs> is a gorgeous ex- description of just getting closer to the subject, but imperceptibly. Actually, I was delighted when we talked about Zoom. It wasn't that awful thing where everybody sees up your nose from your back bedroom. Um, but the, the joys of just using a very gentle and subtle way of getting deeper into an image is is something that it's quite nice to see, isn't it? Absolutely. I think there's also this element, though, of it in these films where it also adds, because it's a little bit janky, it's almost adding an element of kind of cringeworthy comedy to what's otherwise some really difficult stories, like some really dark stories. So I think it's just giving us a little bit of comic relief as well. So if we've got like 30 seconds to find out what one of these amazing janky, is that a, that's right, that's a new word. I'm bringing that to Monocle Radio straight away. So for, for, for good janky, where do we go? I think May, December, there's this excellent scene of Julianne um, Moore opening the fridge and, you know, the zoom zooms in on her face and it's all very dramatic and she says, we've run out of hot dogs. <laughs> And that's, I'm assuming, assuming that's a major pivotal moment in the film. It's just at the beginning, and I think because everyone knows the kind of tabloid story that that film is based on or has looked into it because the film has come out, we know that it's going to be a dark story. So it gives us a little bit of comic relief, I think, what as we're about to head into what is really a, a black comedy the rest of the film. Yes, it's a, a bit normal like and a bit janky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you spell that? J-A-N-K-Y? Yeah. Excellent. I'm going to use that forever. Uh, okay, <laughs> what else have we got? Yeah, so then some more timely, um, some more timely stories. The Samsung Art Store has a new featured photographer this month. Well, he's not new to the Samsung Art Store, and if you're not familiar with it, the Art Store is a platform where users of Samsung's Frame Television, which is a TV when it's turned on and a frame for high fidelity artwork when it's turned off. Um, can download artwork from around the world, from places like the Met, from the Tate Britain, all kinds of cultural organizations around the world. But this month's featured photographer is a really cool one. He's called Wolf Adamite. He's a German nature photographer. And I can totally understand why people would want his works in their homes because he's got these beautiful black and white portraits of animals expressing what looks like really human emotion. They are, um, just looking at them, ladies and gentlemen, you need this in your house. Um, they're hyper detailed, hyper close up. Just the, 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 just if you ever wanted to stare into an orangutan soul or um, wanted to see a, a camel that's chewing a, a piece of straw as if it was contemplating 
life in, in wherever. Um, you go and do this because actually it would be quite overwhelming to have that in my house. I mean, there's a, there's an enormous picture as well of, uh, depends how big your television is, I suppose, but there's an enormous one of, 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 of a lion reaching its its neck back almost to, to, just to bear its its jaws at you. I'm not sure I'd quite how I'd feel about that in my in my in my back room. But the the fact that you can have this kind of stuff in your house is now just utterly glorious, isn't it? Yeah, it's super fascinating. And I think also, I mean, because art is so personal and because we go through these different phases, I think the frame is a great product for being able to change the work the, the work that's on the walls of your home. Um so you can have Da Vinci, Botticelli or Wolf Adamite, who's so poignant and, um, yeah, speaks about his work so so beautifully. I think all of these stills that you've talked about are the product of a lot of patience and a lot of um, great kit and a steady hand and a real talent and a real eye for these kind of human emotions. And there will be someone out there who wants that lion's jaws ready to roar in their, in their kitchen. <laughs> I'm going to get it right now. Isabella Orlando, thank you so much for joining me in this studio. And that's all the time we have for today's programme to Monocle on Saturday. The warmest of thanks to all my guests, Terry Stiasny and Isabella Orlando. Thanks to our producer, uh, Mariella Bellinovan, and studio engineer, Christy Evans. Monocle on Sunday is back next weekend and uh, Georgina Godwin will be back in the chair for that one. But you can join me tomorrow for Monocle on Sunday uh, while I'll be reading the news for Tyler. We'll be back in Zurich for Monocle on Sunday. Strap yourselves in, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Until then, have the great rest of your Saturday. Enjoy your weekend. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.